to overcome, succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty, defeat of an opponent to prevail, overpower or overwhelm of an emotion, adversity, a difficult or unpleasant situation, used in a sentence, resilience in the face of adversity. I want to break free. Welcome back, everybody, to the Overcoming Adversity podcast. This is episode number 31. And if you guys haven't had a chance, please go back and listen to episode number 30 or any of the other 29 episodes before that one. You can get to know us, get to know a lot of our guests and what the Overcoming Adversity podcast is all about. I am one of the hosts here. I am Blake Cohen. I'm here with my other co-host. I'm Amanda Marino, co-host of Overcoming Adversity podcast. Super excited. This podcast is sponsored by Next Level Recovery Associates. Check out nextlevelrecoveryassociates.com. What's up, Amanda? What's up, Blake? Happy uh, Tuesday that feels like a Monday. It does feel like a Monday, and I feel extra tired today, even though I feel like all I did was sit on the couch (laughs) and write a paper all weekend. Um, I should be rested. It feels like the opposite, though. And like today is just one of those crazy, hectic brain days for me. Yes, I feel that. I feel very, I partied way too hard and lived life way too well this weekend. Oh, I mean, good, clean fun, but you know, still. Poor Amanda. She <laughs> lived a great life this weekend. <laughs> so we have an amazing guest today that I, Amanda, I would love if you could introduce and bring him up. Yes, we're really excited. You know, I've been connecting with Brent Bryant on, you know, social media for some time now. And Brent is a family ambassador at Family First. And we absolutely love Family First Adolescent Services and Jupiter and the work that they do. And and James, the owner, has shared some really awesome things about Brent with me um, and some of the work he does and how he goes into schools, which is something similar to you, you know, what you've done, Blake, and and educating kids and, and has just a great story. So Brent, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It's always nice to have somebody on who has experience in going into schools and talking talking to kids. And we've had a few guests in the past who've done that. And it's something that I've been passionate about now for a couple of years. And I can tell you, uh, anybody who's listening, I could say that it is not easy to get through to these kids. Uh, very true. It's not. And, uh, you know, I always take the approach of if I can just reach one out of the thousands, you know, then I'm, I'm, I'm doing something right. And uh, that passion started years and years ago when I became sober. And uh, I started my own business doing it and um, just really love it. And it's like you said, you know, it's, it's difficult because sometimes, you know, they don't pay attention, but then you pay attention to the ones that are paying attention. And, you know, I, I try to make it as interactive as possible and as real as possible. I don't, uh, you know, trying to sugarcoat anything. I really try to not scare them, but just make them realize like this can happen. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that a couple of things that you said really resonated with me is that every time before I go into one of these schools, I do my little prayer that I always say of, and it's all I'm asking in that prayer is that, that I can get through to one person or one kid that day. And that's such an important thing to keep in mind. And it almost takes a little bit of the pressure off of trying to reach the entire classroom or entire auditorium or whatever it may be, if I can just reach one kid, but also the interactive piece. So for anybody out there who wants to go speak to kids, keeping the the presentations interactive 
um, and engaging and sort of steering away from the old dare model of trying to scare kids into not using and but just being honest with them and having a real conversation that to me, I found to be the most effective way to get through to these kids. I was yeah. the president of dare. So they're, you know, and then became a full on drug addict. So that tells you how that program works. Right. Same. <laughs> I, I remember dare and yeah, look at me. You know, it's funny. I remember when dare was going on in my school and they would send, remember there was like a dare pledge that you had to sign. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget. I don't want to put her name out there on blast, but I'll never forget the whole class just sort of like, we just all felt like, I guess we have to sign this thing and no one really gave it much thought except for this one girl in class who was like, I don't think I want to sign this. Like, I don't, I don't know that I'm never going to try drugs. I don't know that I'm not going to smoke marijuana. I don't know that I'm not going to do these things. For her. I don't want to sign this. She kept it real. And that, you know, she's got a great life today and she's never struggled with substance use disorder or anything like that. But I just remember that at that age, being so willing to just kind of buck the system and be like, I don't know if this is how it's supposed to be at 13 to recognize that. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish I could have had that resilience at that age. Right. Yeah. For me, it was like, oh, yeah, I'll just sign this and I'm just going to continue doing whatever I want. <laughs> Get out of here. Get, yeah. Take your sure. drugs and leave, please. So, so Brent, tell us a little bit about, you know, like what got you to this place? Like bring us to the beginning and, and, and what, what, you know, what did you struggle with? And, you know, now that you give back, like what brought you to that place? Yeah. I, uh, like I was telling you guys earlier, I grew up, I have four sisters that were older than me. You know, I grew up in the what would you call the American dream type thing with the family, you know, the white picket fence, all that kind of stuff. We weren't poor. We weren't rich. We were in between. I didn't know that my dad even drank alcohol. I didn't even know what alcohol was growing up in Seattle. And um, unfortunately, uh, his job had to move when I was 12 years old. So that meant I had to move from Seattle and I played a lot of sports uh, in soccer. I traveled all over the United States, played in Canada and stuff at a young age. And when we moved, we moved like 80 miles from where I was going to, uh, from where I previously lived. And I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. So I became this energetic kid to a, basically what I say is a turtle, uh, a scared turtle that hides in its shell. That became me in within that year of moving. My, none of my sisters moved with this because they wanted to stay back and stay in their own school since they're older than me. They're going to graduate and everything. So it was just me, my mom, and my dad. And then my parents got uh, separated and then got a divorce due to my dad's drinking. And that's kind of when it all unraveled. Um, that's when I first started to drink alcohol, not knowing what it was. And when I first tried alcohol and started doing it, I, uh, that guy that was in the turtle came back out again and became the person that he used to be back in Seattle because I had lost everything. And now all of a sudden with this drug, I felt like I gained everything. I was like this different person all over again. And from there, that led to, you know, ruining, as we know, an addiction, so many different things uh, from the age of 12 all the way till I was 34. Um, I continued my addiction and that led to many bad things and not so many good things. So, wow. And once you started going down this road um, and you know, you said you led to your addiction until you were 34. Is, is 34 when you found recovery? Yes. Yeah, I got uh, intervention, actually, from two of my sisters and my dad. Oh, wow. Did they bring in a professional or was it a family intervention? No, it was them. I, so my dad, um, 
became sober in 1995. And um, my mom died in 2005. And after that is when I really basically just wanted to die myself. I mean, I, I was found in a bathtub, passed out fully, you know, water overflowing. And st- I mean, I was just out of control. Wow. And uh, it was either I was going to die or I was going to get help. There was no in between uh, because I was just trying to drink myself to death beings that, you know, she was like the rock that uh, all mothers are, I believe. And yeah. um, that's when they stepped in because I, uh, I crashed a car and did some, you know, just, I was out of control. Okay. And it's, so it sounds like they stepped in and then what, what was the process that looked like what as a result of the intervention, what were they offering you or what did you have a chance to go to treatment or what happened after the intervention? Yeah. So I actually went into treatment. They already had called and stuff and, and found a place. And then, so then I just uh, kind of went from there uh, and looked at it and said, I'm, I'm ready. You know, it was uh, having to take all that weight off of myself. I was ready. Um, my daughter was like a year and a half at that time. And I didn't really have a relationship with her. Um, but I was definitely ready. And I, I was just shocked that they cared enough to, to do that for me. My son was a year and a half old too when I changed my life. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's beautiful that your, you know, your daughter doesn't ever have to know you like that, you know? Exactly. And, and she, and now I tell her all the time, you know, as she gets older, I, I try to explain to her and let her know kind of what I was going through and everything. And, you know, she's like my advocate now when she goes to school and tells all her friends. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. So, you know, I, I, we never want to disillusion any of the listeners that, you know, just going to treatment can fix the issue. So I'm sure once you got to treatment, you realize that there was a long road ahead of you and that there was a lot of work to be done. So maybe if you want to detail some of the work that you had to do and, and how you got to where you are today, as far as spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, of what that looked like and what, what had to really unravel um, in order for you to restart. Yeah, um, I was at the bottom. So when I went to treatment, I had nothing. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. I had no money. I was in debt like crazy. I mean, I basically was living on the streets um, or sleeping in a car. And I will never forget my first day of treatment. And when I went there, I was so willing um, for myself to get the help. So I went to went into it with an open mind. And the first day when I got there, um, they're like, you're going to write everything about your life up and leading to this point. And I'm like, okay. Wow. And it had to be a certain amount of pages. Well, throughout that day, I uh, wrote over 20, I think 25 pages of my life. Wow. And then the next day I got to meet my counselors and stuff. And they read through everything that night. And the next day we had our first meeting and they pinpointed stuff about Okay, it looks like here, you know, that move was pretty traumatic. Did you get help for that? No. The uh, divorce was pretty traumatic. Did you get help for that? No. Um, That's when everything kind of started. So when I look back on that, I was like, okay, so I I can be fixed. Yeah. Um, Is it going to be tough? Yes. But while I was in treatment, I was inpatient for 21 days. And in there, I knew because I had a broadcasting degree, 
that I didn't mind getting up in front of people and speaking. So the AA meetings and stuff and the meetings we held, I was in front of 50, 60 people getting up. And I had a book called Why a Daughter Needs a Dad. And um, it had all these sayings and why a daughter needs a dad in their life. And I read that all the time. And sometimes during our groups, I would read a, a portion of a, a quote or something in there about that. Well, that turned into me and my brain going, well, you know, you should try to help people more and more and more. Because I was very open. Once I let it go, I was very open about my addiction and my mental health issues. And so from that, I started talking to people in groups and stuff and, and talking to them afterwards. And then I actually got up and did my first kind of speech in front of people about how I viewed like you taking care of your problems and stuff um, head on. And then from there, when I got out of treatment, my dad allowed me to live with him. Thankfully, I had nothing. Um, I, I started from the bottom. I had two degrees at the time. I'm a certified PGA golf instructor. Uh, and I had a degree in broadcasting. Well, none of those things were doing anything for me at that time because you know, I had two DUIs, unfortunately, and right. nobody was going to be hiring me. So from there, I just had to breathe and find myself. And it was so scary. And I'll, I'll never forget how scary it was. But I was thankful I had my dad who was sober at the time. So I barely even left the house. But when I started to come out of that shell again, being that turtle, because I went back again to that guy, um, I started opening up so much more to people. And I found the more open I was with anyone whoever would listen, I was going to tell them that I was a recovering alcoholic and I'm human. And I found that that just kind of took off. And so people I would see out and about and stuff that I'd be afraid to talk to, I would tell them my story immediately. And then I found from that, that some of these people are going through the same thing I am. So then I started my own little friendship group of, Hey, let's go play some golf and talk about sobriety. Yeah. And then I, I made friends that way. And next thing you know, I started a Facebook group and all this stuff and boom, I'm doing speeches. But in between all of that, if you would have told me how hard it was going to be in the beginning, I would have looked at you and said, what? Um, because it's not easy, but if you can find some people in your life, it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be one, two or three that are there and they're in the same boat with you and they're rowing the same way, then it's definitely going to be easier. Um, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, been, it's been difficult. Yeah. Having supports is key. And I love what you talked about the book you were reading about why a daughter needs a dad, you know, coming, being myself, being a, a woman that didn't have, you know, a stable father figure really ever until my mom, until I had a stepdad. Um, and then by the time I had that, I was checked out. So I, you know, that's, that's a very beautiful thing that, that you've really honored, you know, with your daughter. Yeah, she's definitely the, the reason why I am here, why I am today. I mean, when I when I cleared my head of the fog of the addiction and knew that, you know what, I can actually have a life without needing a drug to make myself look cool, be cool, all these things, and and started focusing inward and re uh, rehabilitizing or well, I don't know what word I'm looking for there rehabilitating by a healing my life myself my mental health um my daughter was it and from that day forward um everything i've ever done has been not only for myself but it it you know reflects with her so uh, my sobriety will always come first it's going to come before her every day every second of my life because without my sobriety i don't have her so that kind of leads leads my direction 
you you also made some other great points too and i'm curious where this led you or what path this brought you down is it you know you talked about being open and vulnerable and sort of an open book with everybody you came across which you know i know some people who do in recovery and then of course i know some people who sort of keep it close to their chest they're not sure how people are going to uh, receive them if they start to share their history with substances and, and mental health issues. And you took the, you took the former approach of really just being open about it. And it seems to me like you were well-received and it actually led you to some deeper and more meaningful connections and conversations. And it sounds like it also eventually led you down almost, a, it, not almost, it led you down a career path. And path following your passions and dreams. Yeah, it did. Uh, because as soon, you know, as an addict, we're so good at lying and we're so good at being great actors, actresses, um, when we're in the addiction with people that my whole thing was, I want to restore my, my name again. And, um, in the community I lived. And so I worked very hard at that and I was so open and I was so willing to be open with myself that I've always been a emotional person with a huge heart. Um, and like I said, when I saw people, I was so willing and, and I was very vulnerable and I would cry and I don't mind crying. And I still cry to this day. And, you know, I think I'm pretty tough. And if I cry, that's okay. Um, Definitely. <laughs> and that allowed me to, what I found was when I was more open with people, even if they were kind of a recluse and they maybe didn't want to, they would, because all of a sudden they would trust me for if, even if they didn't know me and people after I would talk at something would come over to me, whether I was in a business meeting or something like that, because even those places I would tell people, even as a golf instructor with my students, if I, if they start asking me about my life, you know, lo and behold, I was going to tell them that, yes, I'm in recovery. This is who I used to be. And, and actually what was crazy from that, I, I taught one student, who I didn't know at the time um, was in recovery. He, I think it was our second lesson. He was a lobbyist. He was, you know, here I am driving around on what I called the blue bomber at the time, a little 1991 Honda Ford, just getting my life back. And here he is in a Mercedes and stuff. And I'm like, good gosh. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, of course, asked me one day, he's like, so Brian, you know, what, uh, what is it you do and all this stuff? And I'm like, well, I've been sober for, I think at that time it was like three and a half years and blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling my story. And as I'm done, he stops and looks at me, puts his hand out, shakes my hand and says, Hey, I've been eight years sober. Great job. And I'm like, what? And uh, from there, he, he kind of guided me a little bit by, I went back to college again, got another degree in public relations and marketing and kind of set my path and, and started opening business businesses, whether it was my speaking business and or sports related. Cause I used to be in broadcasting and I used to, do football, basketball, baseball games. So I started my own business doing that, um, which was another passion of mine. So I kind of got everything back, but in a being way. open, yeah, About being open even to this way. day, I love it. Yeah, I, and well, I'm, authentic. I'm not afraid of it. Well, it's so cool, and I, I love, I love that message that we're giving to people. Is that like you, if you are vulnerable with who you are, you build almost immediate trust where people are then vulnerable in return with you and you feel closely bonded and closely connected if you do have those types of uh, open conversations with other people. 
And that's why a lot of the community support groups work for people who are in, in recovery, like 12 Steps, Smart Recovery, I'll be Refuge, because it's a room of people who are open with each other and it, you immediately build this bond and connection that you don't normally find out there in society. Right, being in recovery is an automatic connection with someone. Um, I, I love your, your journey. So tell us like what it looks like for you today. Like tell us about, you know, what, what your life's like today and how all of that has brought you to where you are now and like, and what you do and, and share what you do with family first as well. Yeah. So I moved out here to Florida about a year ago, uh, from Seattle, Washington, my daughter's mom, uh, wanted to move. And they asked me if, if they did move, would I be willing to come out here? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm going to do anything for my daughter. Um, no matter what. So I moved out here with nothing, um, no job or anything like that. I just moved. And um, from that, started looking. And I didn't realize that uh, Florida was like the recovery capital of the world yeah. <laughs> as yep. far as recovery centers, because they didn't have a lot of those in Washington. In fact, Washington, they were, they were kind of going down. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to speak, but, you know, this is during COVID. So I, uh, I was kind of left in a, um, a vacuum of not knowing what I was going to do. I'm like, am I going to have to move back? But uh, I family first found me. I found family first. And, you know, James and Ben and Jeff and everybody at family first has been absolutely amazing. And the ideas that we're coming up with to what I'm going to do and talk to schools and and uh, do all these different things is is super exciting. And I. Uh, you know, being open, I will pitch ideas. I will do all that kind of stuff. And to throw ideas at those guys, they're like, that's genius. And I'm like, are you guys sure about that? <laughs> Usually I'm, I'm used to people going, are you crazy? Which, yeah, but, um, well, you found all, your people, you found your, I know, people, you know this is like my family because I don't know anybody in Florida. I, I only know my daughter and the people I work with. So right. it's just me. I live in an apartment, you know, by myself and everything. So, um, having them now, it is like a family. And that's why I love that it's family first in everything that I dream of, I throw to them and they either will say yay or nay. And, and most of the time it's yay. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like <laughs> I've dreamed about this. I wanted this for myself. Um, with my speeches. I, I mean, I, I wanted to almost, to try to pass laws and things like that for more mental health stuff, for more advocacy, for more all of this as becoming maybe a congressman at some time, you know, to, to make more of an effect on people, to reach people. But with these guys, they've pretty much given me everything that I wanted that I couldn't afford at the time, whether it was resources or money or anything. And now I can take that and, and build and, and reach millions over time, you know. That's amazing. I, I, I don't think I've shared this with you, but I've shared it with James and, and a lot of the people at Family First. The first time I toured the program, I cried because I was in a, a very um, abusive, toxic treatment program as a teenager. And when I first went and, and toured the facility and saw the interaction with the kids and the staff, I literally cried. And, you know, for anyone out there that's listening that has an adolescent boy that struggles, they really change lives of the whole family. Like, I can't say enough amazing things about them from like yeah they do to every every staff member we've met everybody there is just amazing and i and brent i don't know if you're aware of how since you came from seattle like how rare it is to have a leadership team that's that supportive of ideas and that willing to 
to be creative and let let their employees just take the reins and, and grow. I mean, what you just described is so rare in this field because a lot of people are just about, no, we don't want to do that. How can we bring in more admissions? A lot of treatment centers are about that. How can we do more, just get more admissions? That's all we care about. So for them to yeah. allow you to get out there in the way that you are is really rare. And, and you're very fortunate to be at a program that is really that incredible from the top to the bottom. Definitely blessed. And I still remember the, the interviewing process and everything. And I, I just would say like, I'm not in this for to put somebody in a bed somewhere. So if that's going to be the case, I don't want anything, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. want anything to do with it. And they're like, nope. And everything they've said is definitely come true tenfold. And um, they, they've taken what I thought was awesome and just exploded it a hundred percent. That's fantastic. Um, I mean, and you. when you say cry, I, they make me cry all the time with stuff. And I tell them, I'm like, well, you're going to start making me cry. Thanks. And they're just like, Brent, don't ever change. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to. I'll cry all the time. I don't care. <laughs> that's great. Being authentically you, you're keeping that, that true, being vulnerable and being authentically you. And that's a beautiful thing to be. Yeah. So what they do is amazing. And like you said, for anybody that has an adolescent boy, I mean, it's uh it is magical and yeah. it's a place that makes you feel wanted and taken care of all at the same time, which is pretty cool. And that's why I'm so happy to be a part of family first adolescent services and everybody there. Cause my dream and their dreams are, we're all in that, like I said, the same boat rolling in the same way, you know, which is amazing. So Brent, I kind of have a, a little bit of a tough question for you is if there was a family out there listening, or let's say there's a parent who has an adolescent boy uh, who's struggling with either mental health or substance use disorder, what would be your message to that family? What would you like to get across to them? Uh, first of all, you're not alone. Um, that there's people out there that care. You're not the only ones going through this. And um, there are places, whether it's us or some other places out there, that, that can be a benefit to you. Um, I always think, and, and I look back at my past and thought I was the only person until I joined this huge family of yeah. you know, people getting help, which you're stronger for than you are for not. And that's my biggest thing is that there's people that care. We care. I care. I say this all the time to not only families, but just kids in general when I do speeches is that, you know, if you don't think somebody cares about you, well, then that, that's not true because I'm standing here in front of you letting you know that I care about you and I love you. I don't know you, but I genuinely care about you, your well-being, and that's why I'm here. And so for any family is to let them know that, that uh, people do care, I care, and that, uh, you know, journey is different for everyone. So like there's, I mean, you can always kind of try to lay out a script for somebody of how it might be, but uh, it's, it's always going to be different. So yeah, it just all hard. depends on the parents themselves, but you know, that there's a place that we have in family first or somebody else might have that uh, is going to be so beneficial, not only for you as a family, but for your child as well. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing is the whole family healing, you know, not just like here, take my kid and fix them. It's like, let's, let's get, let's get everyone healthy. Let's get everyone help. Let's, you know, let's heal as a whole. That's definitely what family first does. Yeah. And I look at it like, you know, if, if there was a, uh, an oil spill out to sea and you, you took out, you know, some of the birds that got, you know, hit with oil, 
and you cleaned them up and threw them back into the ocean and there's still oil in there, what have you done? Right, exactly, exactly. So you you, you got to basically, the, the, the whole it's family true. is the oil. You got to take that and clean it up and then, you know, go from there. It, uh, it's, a, it's a family thing because, you know, if you send that kid that's healthy back into a situation that might not be healthy, then they're going to revert back to everything that they knew before. Absolutely. Right. And you can't just triage the situation. You got to continue on and change the patterns and the structure of the family system. You, yeah. You know, you, you brought up a lot of good points throughout this whole interview, and I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, if I can just piggyback on what you said about uh, families and, and getting help and realizing they're not alone, is that we as professionals or other supports out there aren't aware you're struggling unless you say something and you reach out for help. So don't be afraid because we are all here to support you and guide you along and whatever professional, like if it's family first, or like you said, other centers, they're there to support you and guide you through this process. But we can't do that. We can't reach out to everybody and assume you're struggling. You have to come forward. So keeping that within the family system or keeping that a secret is only keeping you guys sick longer. So the first thing that you should do is seek out professional help or guidance even if it's from somebody at a church, a temple, you know, whatever it may be, reach out to somebody who can guide you in the right direction so you could start the healing process for your family. Yes, most definitely. It's very, and, and that's why I love being so vulnerable. And I mean, that's just who I am in general um, is a, I'm very vulnerable. I wear my heart on my sleeve and you're going to know everything about me um, immediately. And when I tell that story, I tell my story, I tell things about what I've been through and all that stuff. That's usually where I find, like you, we talked about earlier, is where they will open up more because they're like, what? This guy? No way. You went through that stuff? And I'm like, yeah. You know, or if I cry, which I could be in the middle of a speech in front of kids and start crying. If I talk about the death of my sister or my mom or something like that, and they just look at me and next thing you know, you'll see and like there'll be people crying too. And I'm like, wow, oh, this is, that, that's what that raw emotion does. And it, and it hits you. And that's why I try to post as much stuff as I possibly can to hopefully open somebody up someday to where they're like, you know what, I can get help. This is, uh, I'm not better or worse than I can, I can do this. Yeah. I'm a big, uh, big recovering out loud fan. I feel like by me sharing what I've been through that and actually really work. So many people reach out to me and say, oh my God, I can't, you know, thank you for sharing that. I felt like I was alone. And and that is one of the pluses of social media. There's a lot of negatives to it, but that's definitely one of oh, the yeah. pluses is the, the ability. So it's a little easier for someone to like send a message like, hey, this is my, my daughter's going, than it is to pick up a phone. So it has like been able to help more people than, um, than before. So um, keep, keep recovering out loud and, and sharing your heart. What's funny is that I, I was recovering out loud in the beginning, right? Same thing as you, Brent. I mean, I just was telling everybody that I was in recovery early on, but it wasn't, it was really more for selfish reasons. I felt like I needed to tell people so that I can be held accountable and I had to protect myself so that nobody put me in a situation where I would feel tempted and they would understand right away, this guy's in recovery. We better, you know, I, I don't offer him anything or if you see him drinking, call him out. I just was trying to tell everybody to hold myself accountable. But as a result, as time went on, months and years went on, I started recognizing that by being by recovering out loud, it did build those connections and built those, those deep personal relationships that I don't think I would have had otherwise if I wasn't so open about myself. And I'm, I'm not talking about just people in the rooms or 
people in recovery, just people in general. I mean, the amount of random people that have opened up to me in public just because I was open to them. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's, I mean, I, I just kind of ran into it, right? I didn't, I didn't even know. I just felt like that's what I needed to do. And I, that's what I felt I wanted to do um, was to try to get everything out of me as far as speaking. And I knew that when, after I did, I felt so much better. Yeah. Um, and, and we're open to people, right? So um, even when my sister passed away, um, people were so scared because I was sober at the time, so scared of me falling back into that thing that they, I had so many people check in on me. I'm like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> like yeah. I'm trying to help out my nieces and nephews that just lost their mom and stuff. It, it, uh, it opened so much, me being so open all those years before, I mean, she died like four years into my sobriety, um, created a path for people to check in on me. And, and uh, that was huge. And not only on social media, but just in general in person, it was, uh, it was absolutely amazing. So I think with all of it, now I have, you know, my friends that are sober that still live back in Washington that I talk to all the time still. Um, still have our daily stuff or, you know, chats and then our, our weekly like AA meeting type things where we just talk to each other and we're all open and I can cry. I can do anything in front of them, but they're not going to judge me or anything like that. And that makes me feel at home. And, and uh, I do that, you know, as my daughter gets older, I same thing, you know, the more honest I am with her, the more honest she's going to be with me. And, and um, it's created a great relationship. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. So where can people find you, Brent? Like if they want to look you up, um, where can they find you? Uh, just so you can find me on Facebook. It's just my name, LinkedIn, my name, uh, Instagram. I'm trying to, to become a TikTok person. Um, oh, you know, man. I know. Yeah. That's a commitment. Me. That's a commitment I, I'm not willing to do. Dances? <laughs> uh, no, I, no. Uh, no dances for me. I mean, that that actually might get you, you know, blow up if if I were to try to start dancing. So oh, right. watch out That's TikTok. My, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, just you know, any of the social Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, I probably do the most on, and try to I try to do it on Facebook as much as I can. So yeah, just Brent Bryan on, on any of those, and awesome. you can reach out to me, not a problem. And of course, guys, check out Family First Adolescent Services. They're an incredible program. And just even call call Brent just to find out a little bit more information about it or call the admissions office and just get a little information to hear about what they're doing over there and the, the path and trajectory they're on to really change the way that adolescents are treated. It's, it's pretty incredible. So before yeah. we go, we do have one last little segment here where it gives our guests and ourselves the opportunity to let it out. And it is the let it out segment. So the idea behind the let it out segment is we all overcome major adversities in our life. We go through some type of big trauma or an event in our life that we have to overcome that's very difficult for us. But at the same time, we also experience small and minor adversities every single day that we have to overcome that when a problem shared, a problem is cut in half. So we want to give you, Brent, a chance to just vent and let it out. What's bothering you today? Uh, my air conditioning went out in my car. Oh, oh, that's tough. Oh, in summer. And this is a little while back. So I've ha haven't had air conditioning for a little bit, right? And uh, it's, uh, yes, it's, it's hot a lot here. And so I, uh, 
found a mechanic and stuff and you know you get the price and you're like holy but it's totally worth it uh to have air conditioning in florida so yes it's a must um, it is worth it yeah i would say I, so. I, I don't think my car was used to that air conditioning so much coming from washington oh, so uh, yeah. i think i might have overloaded its brain and it decided to stop on me so uh that is the most annoying thing right now going on for me is that uh, I'm dying driving in my car. That's a good let that's, it out. That's a good, that's let a it good out. one. Amanda? My <laughs> let it out is it's annoying. <laughs> it's annoying when people don't accept electronic payments, like anything that doesn't accept an electronic payment right oh, now, wow. like where I have to like write a check or like get cash. It just is super inconvenient for me. And I know it's like such a high class problem to have, but I like want to be able to do everything with like Zelle. If I can't Zelle you, I don't want to pay you. <laughs> I had a full weekend of struggling with that between being in Miami for my wife and I's anniversary and nowhere for parking accepts Venmo or card. Everything is cash. And who carries cash anymore? It's, I know. It's like a dying thing where we don't, you don't need cash anymore. We have all these electronics. I can put my phone up to a machine and it automatically pays. And yeah. then dealing with our mortgage and our HOA fees, it's like, you need to send in a check. You can't pay electronically. I'm like, how far behind are you guys? Right. It's insane. What is going on? Insane. Um, my let it out for today is that I'm in the middle of a school assignment. And I just don't understand some of these assignments. And to me, it feels like teachers just give you these extra long papers to write with all of these, these citations that you have to do within the paper, just to purely say, oh, we, we're giving them their money's worth. We're making them work for this degree. Even though the assignments, a lot of them are arbitrary and I can answer their questions within one page. You know, you gotta write eight to 10 pages on it and just expand upon these ideas in the most ridiculous way where I'm just looking for ways to repeat myself for eight to 10 pages. And it's just so frustrating as I'm writing this, this particular uh, you know, pay assignment right now that is like a two-word answer I could give <laughs> to answer this question. And I'm like trying to figure out how to make it multiple pages. It's just driving me nuts. Oh, poor Blake. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been awesome. So you can find Blake and I, Next Level Recovery Associates, um, on all social media outlets. You can find us Overcoming Adversity Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, this yeah. has been awesome. And if you guys are interested, anybody who's listening has either themselves or somebody they know who thinks would be a great guest on the Overcoming Adversity podcast, shoot us an email at overcomingadversitypodcast at gmail.com and tell us a short bit of your story. So yeah, we don't want a book. We don't want yeah, a book. We don't want a lot of books. I can promise <laughs> you not to be mean, not to be mean, but the books don't get read. <laughs> so... Well, again, keep crushing it, Brent. Keep making a difference. Keep being vulnerable and keep helping, you know, families and adolescents and, and all the work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, that's just who I am. That's who I wake up and go to bed being. And uh, I appreciate you guys for having me on. Thank you so much. And uh, you guys are rock stars. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate you. I Bye, want everybody. to break free.